Well, like many of you in the room and many of you watching online, I am a Dallas Cowboys fan. And yes, see, we got, got a little sport there. And I've been my whole life. Um, grew up as a Dallas Cowboys fan. In fact, one of my favorite memories as a kid was going to a game with my dad. I always watched him on TV. And uh, when I was about 10 years old, I actually got to go to a game with my dad. 1979, the Cowboys were playing the Redskins back then. And it was one of the best comebacks ever in Cowboys history. Those of you that are a real Cowboys fan may know, but we were there at the game. Cowboys are losing 13 points, just a few minutes left in the game. And my dad and I are having the conversation, are we going to leave now to try to beat the crowd and get out, you know, get out of the parking lot, or are we going to stay? And we decided to stay, and it ended up being one of the greatest comebacks ever and just a highlight of my childhood as a Cowboys fan, getting to be there for that game and watch them come back and win. It was great. Being a Cowboys fan is not always so great, however. In fact, there's a lot of heartache and a lot of disappointment that comes along with it. In fact, here's what the Cowboys have had a tendency to do over the last couple of decades, and that is to start out really strong and look really good early in the season, and they just kind of fall apart at the end of the year, and they, they break your heart. And it's a reminder that starting strong isn't enough. We need to finish strong as well. And that's really what the, the book of Colossians is all about. That's what our passage is about today in Colossians chapter 2. They've started strong, but Paul is writing to them to say, okay, let's keep this going. Let, let's continue on in your faith, and let's make sure that you finish strong as well. So open your Bible with me to Colossians 2. That's where we're going to pick up as we've been making our way through this book. We're going to start in verse 6 today. And it says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord... Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So verse 6 starts off here by saying, Just as you received... Christ Jesus as Lord, to continue to, to live in Him. Or literally what it says is to walk in Him. We are to walk in Him the same way that we received Him. So that begs the question, well, how do we receive Him? As you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Or some translation is more literal, just says as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. This is who He is. So just as we received him as he is, the Lord, we are to continue to, to walk in him or to live that way. Another way of saying that is this, that we cannot receive Jesus without receiving him as Lord, because that's who he is, right? So if we are receiving him, then we are receiving him as he is, as the Lord, and then we continue to, to walk in that, and he is has that title as Lord because of who he is. And we'll get into this a little more in a bit, but we're going to talk about this further. He is God, always has been. He is our Savior. He became our once-for-all sacrifice for sins. He gave himself on the cross for us. So he rightfully has this title 
of Lord. And if we are going to receive him, then we're going to receive him as he is, as Lord. Uh, but then it, it also kind of begs another question. Okay, how do we do that? We receive him as Lord, but, but what does that look like? How, how do we receive Christ as Lord? Is it by repeating a certain phrase or a prayer, which we'll have opportunity to do at the end of the service today? Is that the answer? Is it going to church? Is it committing to be good? And what, what does the Bible say about how we receive Christ as Lord? To me, the best answer to that question comes from Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So what we need in order to be saved is God's grace. That's, that's how it, it, it comes about. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. We deserve hell. God gives us heaven. We deserve separation from him. God gives us intimacy with him. We deserve unrest. God gives us peace. That's what grace is. It's God giving us what we don't deserve. So when Jesus died on the cross and became our payment for sin, God's grace was extended to everyone from that point forward. Every person is offered the grace of God. But not everyone lives under the grace of God. And so we have to come to a point of receiving that grace that God offers. Like most people in the world, I will buy things on Amazon from time to time and have things delivered, right? Sometimes I will even buy something for someone else and have it delivered to them. Now, if I bought something for you, um, and, and, and I've set it up to be delivered to you, it really doesn't become yours until it's delivered to your home or your office and you receive it, right? That's the point at which it becomes yours. So God's grace has been purchased for us. We didn't buy it ourselves. Christ purchased the grace of God for us. But faith is that delivery driver. Faith is how it gets to us, and then we have to receive it by faith. So it's by faith that we receive the grace of God, and when it says, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. We received him by faith, but then it says, continue to live your lives in him the same way, which is by faith. Now, I think most of us that have maybe at least been around um, the faith for a period of time probably have a decent grasp on this concept of it's by grace we've been saved through faith. Yeah, that's probably not a new idea to anybody in the room here today. We know that. And maybe we embrace that, that we're saved by grace through faith. But then sometimes we act like in order for us to grow in our faith, that's dependent upon our own works, right? That's depending on our own ability. And it says that we are to continue to walk in him the same way that we received him, which is by faith. And so to remind her to us, and this is the first main idea today, that the Christian life begins and continues by faith. We started by faith, and we continue and we grow in it by faith. Now, I do want to be very clear about something. To say that we live by faith and not by our own efforts does not mean that we have nothing to do. It doesn't mean that, that there's no 
um, participation on our part because we must actively choose. The Bible tells us to walk by faith and not by sight, right? Walk by faith. So we're exercising faith. But to live by faith or to walk by faith means that we are dependent upon God and dependent upon His goodness and, and not our own. And so we're constantly making that conscious choice of, okay, I'm going to do this by faith. I'm going to put this in God's hands. I'm going to trust him with that. And so we, we just kind of have a shift of, of mindset when we are living by faith. You know, if you're trying to live the Christian life in your own strength and your own ability, I bet you're completely exhausted because <laughs> there's no way, Right? I mean, it, it would kind of be like trying to ride a bicycle up Mount Denali in Alaska. And I've been there recently. I've seen the size of that mountain. And I'm telling you, it ain't going to happen. There is no way to be able to do something like there, there is no way for us to muster up enough strength and energy to live out the Christian life in our own ability. It just can't happen. But what we can do is exercise faith. And we can say, okay, Jesus, I'm choosing to trust you. I'm choosing to surrender to you in this way. I'm choosing to make your priorities my priorities so that I'm living by faith. And once we do that, look at what, what happens. It says in verse 7, there's a really great uh, image here, or, or, or a, a visual. It says it's, that we are rooted and built up in him. Let's, let's hang out on that word rooted here for just a minute. Uh, this word is used in the New Testament only twice, here and in Ephesians 3.17, where it talks about being rooted and grounded in love. Uh, so it's, it's not real commonly used, but this, this idea of being rooted, I mean, just think about this in terms of what we understand. When something is well-rooted, it's very difficult to move, right? I mean, occasionally, we, you know, hurricanes come and things like that, and trees get blown over. I mean, when there's some massive, you know, force of wind or something that happens, and even something that's well-rooted can be uprooted, but think about a tree that is just freshly planted in the ground. It's not very big. It doesn't have a root system established. You could walk up and kick it and knock it over, right? Because it's not well-rooted. But you try to go kick over a tree that's been there for 10 years and see what happens. It's not going anywhere because it's well-rooted. I was reminded again this week of just how um, significant a root system can be. And I, I brought a visual with you, and I've been waiting to tell you all this through this whole service that I've got my weed in a Ziploc bag. So I'll, I'll explain what that means a little bit more clearly here in a minute. Uh, but Stephen accused me of that this morning when I was bringing it in. So these are, this is actually a big weed from my backyard. So let me tell you what happened. Um, we, about five years ago or so, four or five years ago, we replaced the grass in our front yard and I've been trying to, you know, get it to establish well. And there's one little section that just hasn't been doing as well. I've replaced it twice and I've figured out, you know, it needs a little extra water, doesn't get quite as much sunlight. So it just takes a little extra care. And so this summer, I, I was determined that that grass is not going to die this year. And so I'm watering extra, and if you remember, we went through a very dry spell this summer, and a very hot spell. DFW, this wasn't the case here, but do you remember DFW had 67 days in a row with no rain? And I think right now it's 30 plus, I don't know what it is, it's been a long time again. So there have been lots of seasons. Now, so, so I'm watering my front grass, trying to make sure that it, that it gets pretty well rooted, because I don't want to lose the grass. But those of you that have watered a good bit during the summer... It's expensive, right? I mean, those water bills get really high. And so I'm thinking, okay, the, the backyard is a little bit more 
uh, established and drought tolerant, so I didn't water it quite as much. We got all that rain recently, and everything just, you know, just grows back up, and it was wonderful. And so I decided, okay, maybe I can make up for some of that extra money spent during the summer by not watering much, especially in the backyard uh, over the last month or so. Bad decision. Here's what came as a result of that, and, and this is just one. But I, just, I want you all to check out the, the root system on these things. I don't even know what this is. Somebody can help me define that. I can just tell you there's like 300 of them in my backyard now. You know why? Because I didn't water the grass well. Because the, the healthy grass wasn't well taken care of, so it allowed for the weeds to come in. Now, once these things get rooted... It's not, it's not easy to get rid of. I'm just going to tell you that. I spent a lot of time, in fact, I'm, I, I'm wearing this Band-Aid to cover over the blister I got from without wearing gloves, trying to, yeah, it was, it was just a bad, it was a bad time. Um, but the best way, you know the best way to keep weeds from getting into your yard is to grow healthy grass. That's, that's the answer. You don't focus on the weeds you focus on creating healthy grass, and it chokes everything else out. But when you're not doing that, when what's supposed to be there isn't well-rooted, it allows other things to get rooted in there. I thought, Man, what a visual, right? When we are not watering and feeding and caring for our own spiritual development, when we're not taking care of our relationship with Christ, and we're not well-rooted in our faith, that allows other stuff. That allows the weeds to start coming in. I'm going to tell you, if we're not well-rooted, something else will be. If it's not Christ in us, it will be something else. And, and, and so he's, he's reminding us here that we need to be deeply rooted in our faith. Again, the primary purpose of this letter is to combat false teaching. And so look at what, what it says in the following verse, in verse 8. This is what can happen when we're not rooted. This is, this is some of the weeds that can come in. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental, elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. See, there were all kinds of different ideas out there. This is how you can be saved, or no, this is really what you need to do. So Colossians was written to say, let's remember, focus on Jesus. It's all about Jesus, and he keeps pointing us back to Jesus. But if we don't get rooted in Jesus, then other stuff can come in. This wisdom, so-called wisdom of the world that is devoid of Christ. So here's the second thing that we need to do, and that is to avoid philosophy and empty deception, as he says here. That's literally what it says. To, to avoid this philosophy and empty deception. Philosophy, that, those two words, it just means love of knowledge. Or wisdom, really more wisdom. Love of wisdom. So, that's not a bad thing. In fact, you read through the book of Proverbs, and it just over and over and over again talks about seeking wisdom. And it even says that we are in Proverbs chapter 2. We should search for wisdom as for hidden treasure. So, he's not saying not to seek wisdom. But in order to understand what he's getting at, we need to go back to verse 3, which we, we studied last week. But in verse 3 in chapter 2, he's talking about Christ, and it says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, if we really want true wisdom, if we really want true knowledge, those things are found in Christ. And if you pull Jesus out, then that's when you get into this emptiness. That's when you get into this deception and, and, and those kinds of things. Parents... One of the, the biggest responsibilities that we have, and grandparents, we could certainly tie into this as well, 
one of the biggest responsibilities and privileges we have is to help our kids understand and grow in knowledge and wisdom, right? We want our kids learning. We want our kids to, to, to understand new things. But it's to make sure that in the midst of that, that knowledge and that learning that Christ stays at the center of all that. And those of you that, that um, have your kids in, in public schools, maybe go to public universities, which we did both of those for our kids, um, I'm just telling you, they're, they're, they're going to be faced with things. They're going to be faced with information that is, that is not uh, in alignment with who Christ is, and it's helping sort through those things and figure out, okay, what's, how do we hold on to the good, get rid of the bad, but it's, it's staying focused on Christ because the other things are empty and deceptive. Now, just to have a little fun, I, I brought with me a little visual today because you all know I like to do that. When I think about things being empty and deceptive, this is what I think of. Y'all seen, all seen this as kids, right? It's like, I got my 1,000-pound weights. Yeah, I'm doing, doing my stuff. And everybody looks at this and goes, okay, I know that this is not the real deal, right? It is very, very obvious when you look at something like this that it's hollow. You know that it's not, and even if it wasn't hollow, it wouldn't weigh 1,000 pounds. So that's just a little weird. That's what they put on there. But you know that this is empty, right? But I was doing a little looking, and I didn't have time to get them in uh, in time and honestly, I didn't really want to spend that much money on them either because it's expensive. But there is stuff out there that are fake weights that look real. And so since I don't have it with me, I'll put the picture on the screen. This is actually, those are actually styrofoam weights. But you can imagine that if you get something like that, it looks like the real deal, right? Guys, when it comes to the, the empty philosophy of the world, it doesn't look like this. It, it's not just obvious and ridiculous and oh it's evident to anybody you know that's not a thousand pounds we're pretty sure about that it's going to look more like that it looks real and it can be very deceptive and that's why it's so important that we um, know who Christ is and, and stay focused on Christ and then he goes into the very next couple of verses for in Christ, verse 9, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. You see this again, right? This keeps coming back. Let's keep coming back to Christ. Let's keep coming back to who he is. And let's focus on that. Now, I think this is probably a good time for us to run down this path a little bit of talking about when it says in Christ, the, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Let's talk about the nature of God for a minute, can we? And maybe just go even just a little bit academic here for just a moment. But who is God? What are we talking about when we say in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives? And, and really what we're talking about here is the Trinity. We're talking about who God is, that God exists as one God but in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One essence, not three gods, one God, but three persons. Now, I know if, if that's like, I don't know, I, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. We'll join the club because it is difficult for us to, to wrap our mind around some of these truths. But you go back to the very beginning, Genesis 1.26, for example. It says, this is what God said. He said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. This isn't a new idea, that God is one, as we'll talk about in a minute, but, but then he's saying things like, let us make man in our image. And then John's gospel starts with, the, with saying, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. That word is Jesus. He was God. He was with God in the very beginning. And so th these aren't new ideas, 
But I think there are three, well, there's more than three. We're going to talk about three. Three things that I think are important for us to understand when it comes to trying to grasp the Trinity. Here's some key concepts. Number one is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. They're distinct. They're, they're not the same. It's not that God first appeared as Father and then appeared as Son. That's a heresy, by the way, called modalism, that he just changed from one mode to the other and then became the Holy Spirit. That's not it. It's evident that uh, the Father sent the Son into the world. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son. It's obvious that these are two distinct persons. You think about Jesus praying to his Father in heaven. Think about both the, the Father and the Son sending the Holy Spirit to become our counselor. And I, it's very, very clear from Scripture that these are three distinct persons. And we see on a few occasions the Trinity show up kind of together. One of the, the best examples of that was Jesus' baptism. When John the Baptist was about to baptize, you remember, so we have, we have God the Son about to be baptized. The Father speaks from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then sends the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And so it's all three of those are right there together. Um, and, and it's very clear that they're all unique persons. And by the way, before we move on to the next one, let me just say this. Most of us are more comfortable and familiar with the idea of the Father and the Son being a person. Maybe not as comfortable or familiar with that being true of the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you how many times I hear the Holy Spirit referred to as it. The Holy Spirit is not it. The Holy Spirit is He. The Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead, just like the Father and the Son are. So distinct persons within the Godhead. That's, that's the first thing. The second thing um, is that each person of the Trinity is fully God. Each fully God. Now, if I were to, to take a pizza, one whole pizza, and cut it in three sections and give you a third of that, right? That one section is going to be one third of the whole. We're not talking here about Jesus being a third God and the Father being a third God and the Holy Spirit being a third God. No, they're all 100% God. They're all equally God. They're of this, this same essence. I like the way it was described in a book called Systematic Theology. It's a theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem. And he said this, the being of each person is equal to the whole being of God. So in other words, the, the, the essence of each individual, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is equal to the wholeness of God. And, and a lot of this, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we were uh, talking about the Council of Nicaea, if you remember that, 325 AD, where they kind of worked out who is Jesus and, and, and what is his nature and, and is he um, of the same essence, and that was the, their fancy word there is homoousios, of the same essence as the Father, and the same is true of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so they are they're each fully God. But then the third thing I want us to remember is this. There is only one God. We are not polytheistic in our theology. We're not, sometimes we're accused of that. Uh, Muslims in particular believe that Christians worship three separate gods in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't. We worship one God. Um, God is three and God is one. Clearly throughout the Bible it teaches the oneness of God. 
the Shema, which was the kind of the, the creedal statement of Jewish families, comes from Hebrews, um, excuse me, Hebrews, I don't know where that came from. Deuteronomy 6.4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And plenty of other places in Scripture that we could point to. It reinforces that God is one. And so when we speak of God being three and we speak of God being one, we're not contradicting ourselves. We're saying that in, in one way he is three, three persons, and another way he is one. He's one essence. It's kind of like the classic line from Charles Dickens when he said, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times, right? Is he contradicting himself? No, he's saying in some ways... It was the best of times. In some ways, it was the worst of times. And, and so it, it's, God is three in one way and is one in another way. All right, I, think, I think we'll stop chasing that path right now. It's a lot to try to digest, but it's important for us to understand. When it talks about Jesus, in him was the fullness of the deity living in bodily form, that we understand Jesus just as the Holy Spirit, just as the Father. They're all fully God. And it's important for us to, to have that clarity. Then verse 10, as a result of that, because of that, because Jesus is fully God, it says, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Now, to be clear, we're not saying you've been brought to deity. That's not what it's saying at all. But it is saying you've been brought to fullness in the sense that you are lacking nothing. In Christ, we have everything that we could possibly need. So, apart from him... We're, we're separated from God in Christ. We have all that we need. Now let's finish out this last little section here. Verse 13 through 15. It says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross final takeaway that I, that I want you to walk away with today is this that we receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers because of who he is because in him all the fullness of the deity dwells and because he gave himself for us because at the end, which we kind of moved over quickly, where it talks about being buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the working of God. Because of all of that, because of what he has done, we can experience forgiveness through Christ. And this little passage, these, I guess, three verses from verse 13 to 15, they're some of my favorite verses in all the Bible because they make it so clear that God's forgiveness is available to every single person. All of us uh, can experience forgiveness through Christ. And it's such a God-centered passage as well. You know, sometimes we may get hung up on our part and our response and what do we need to do to be saved and all that. But the, the focus of Scripture is all about, let's look at what God has done. You know, He has provided all of this for us. And then there's one super powerful little word, at least it's, it's somewhat little in the Greek, it's even smaller in the English. And that is this word in Verse 13, at the very end, he forgave us, what's the next word? All our sins. He forgave us all our sins. Everything that we have ever done, the Bible tells us that we can be forgiven of 
all of those things. Not just some of them, not just most of them, but all of them. Perhaps you are like some people that I have met in the past that just don't feel worthy of receiving forgiveness from God. And maybe you struggle with that. Maybe you struggle with, but I've done all of this, and I've messed up so badly, and, and how could God really forgive me? And if you wrestle with that, I just want to remind you that the Word of God says He has forgiven all of our sins, that, that, that He washes us clean of all of those things. There's nothing that we have to hold on to. And the reason for that, verse 14 says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, which says we were guilty, we are guilty, but he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Isn't that an incredible image? Think about all the the charges against you, all the things that you have done wrong, all the sins of the past, where God could look at those things and say, you are in debt. You deserve death. You deserve to be punished. You deserve God's wrath. But I'm taking those things, I'm taking that legal charge, and I'm nailing it to the cross. And when Jesus died on that cross for us and his hands and his feet were nailed to the cross, our indebtedness was nailed there with him. Church, that's good news. He offers forgiveness because Christ has died for all of those things. So then why in the world would we just continue to, to carry that burden? Again, I know for many it's hard to let go. It's hard to receive the forgiveness that God offers. Sometimes we get stuck in the past and we get stuck in guilt and all this, but that's not where we should live as followers of Christ. He has forgiven all of our sins. He nailed those things to the cross for us. So my prayer for you today is that you would find freedom. That that if you're carrying that burden of guilt, that you would understand You don't have to carry that yourself. Jesus died for those things. All of those things were nailed to the cross with him. And so as we prepare to wrap up today, I just want to encourage you with that, but I also want to offer an opportunity for those that don't know the full forgiveness of God and haven't experienced that yet. Here's a prayer that you can pray. A prayer to trust in Christ. And, and, and that could be those of us that are here, but that could be those that are watching online. I just have this, this sense that there's somebody watching online that's going to say, this is my day to trust in Christ. This is my day to give my heart to the Lord. And if that's the case, here's a prayer that you can pray to trust in Jesus. We'll put the words on the screen for you at home. We'll put them on the screen here. But just to give us a guide so that we know, okay, God, this is my prayer of faith. If you're ready to trust in Christ, if you're ready to receive the forgiveness that he offers, then pray a prayer like this. Let's bow our heads together. If you know today that you're ready to give your life to Christ and say something like this to him, God, I want to start by confessing that I am dead in my sins, just like the Bible says. I don't deserve your love and grace, but thank you that you offer it anyway. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sins and you rose on the third day. Right now, I surrender to you as Lord of my life. 
Thank you for canceling my sin debt on the cross. I give myself fully to you from this day forward. In your name I pray. Amen.